Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 27 to chapter 12, verse 17. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority am I doing these things. Chapter 12 Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he said, a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarii and let me know, look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you very much, Sarah. Please keep Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12 open, page 1016. Shall we pray together? Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Why should we listen to Jesus? I wonder how you'd answer that question if someone asked you. If you're not sure, maybe one of the Digging Deeper seminars is for you. Or if you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome. It's wonderful to have you with us. And I guess you could well be asking that question. Why should I listen to Jesus? I hope for all of us, whether we're being asked that question or whether we're asking it ourselves, as we consider those verses that Sarah just read for us, that we will see good reasons to listen to Jesus. We'll see some of the dangers of not listening to him. And then we'll hear some wonderful words that we can listen to. So if you remember where we're up to in Mark's gospel, previously Jesus had walked into the temple courts and driven out those who were selling to worshippers there and exploiting them. And it appears in the reading we've just had that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, well, they weren't happy. And so in our reading, we hear about their opposition to Jesus. But I think as they oppose Jesus, we're actually shown wonderful things about him and his ministry. So as we look through this passage, we'll spend time looking at Jesus. And by God's grace, I think we'll see three aspects of Jesus. His authority, his rejection, and his wisdom. So Jesus' authority, Jesus' rejection, Jesus' wisdom. So firstly, we see Jesus' authority in his first altercation with the leaders. Because they ask ask him about it directly enough, don't they? Verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Of course they want to know about Jesus' authority because they should be in charge. They're the ones supposed to be in charge of the temple. But this upstart teacher from Galilee, he's come in and he's quite literally turned the tables. They want to know what's going on here. What right has he got to do this? And Jesus gives them, he gives them a pretty savvy response, doesn't he? He asks them about John, John the Baptist's baptism. He asks them where it comes from. And I think probably by John's baptism, he's meaning all of John's ministry. And Jesus, he's got them either way. If they say John's baptism was from heaven, well, they're hypocrites for not believing him. But if they say it wasn't, well, the crowd who like John, well, they're going to be angry. So Jesus, he's got them. But he's doing more than that. People wiser than I who've written on this passage, they've pointed out that the whole focus of John the Baptist's ministry was pointing to Jesus, who was to come. You go back to the start of Mark's gospel, it is John the Baptist's ministry that Mark opens his gospel with. And so when Jesus, he's asking about John's baptism, he's not just asking a clever question to get out of answering theirs. No, Jesus is saying, what is your attitude to the one who was pointing forward to me? Jesus is saying, John was given authority from God to point forward to him, so if you reject John, well, it's no surprise you end up rejecting Jesus. Their attitude to John shows their attitude to Jesus, because God had ordained things so that John pointed forward to Jesus. Well, how about us? Because as far as I'm aware, we do not have John the Baptist lurking somewhere in the corners of the building. 
if we do, he's staying quiet. What do we have to point forward to Jesus? We've got this thing. We've got the Bible. We've got a whole book, Old and New Testaments, culminating in, pointing to, and expounding Jesus and his life and death and resurrection on the cross. We have this book given by God to point us to Jesus. And so, by comparing with the Jewish leaders, I think we can see that our attitude to this book, like their attitude to John, that's going to affect our attitude to Jesus. If we take this book and if we listen to it, as it is the words of God, if we submit to it, then we will ultimately be taken to Jesus, the one who this book is about. If we love Jesus, if we want to follow him, if we want to submit to his authority, then we should first listen to the way God tells us about Jesus. But that also means, doesn't it, that if we reject this book, if we try and explain it away or think we don't have to live our lives by what it says, well then I think, like the Jewish leaders, we're on a slippery slope that could end up with us rejecting Jesus. And that's a tragedy. But I think there's more for us to learn from the Jewish leaders here because I know that by and large, St. Ed's, it's a church that does love the Bible, that does love Jesus. That's one of the reasons Rebecca and I joined St. Ebbs two and a half years ago. But I think there's still a danger for us who love God's word. Because think back to the Jewish leaders. They weren't some group of random upstarts who'd taken it upon themselves to lead God's people. No, they were the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders. They were in roles that God had set up back in the Old Testament so that his people would know him as their God and that they'd follow him as they ought. They had God-ordained roles, but over time, it seemed they become more concerned with their own roles, with their own authority. So when Jesus came, they didn't want anything to do with him. They had God-ordained means that became corrupted over time. And we just thought about how we've got God-ordained means to know Jesus... But we're sinners, just like the Jewish leaders were. And so we should be aware that it's possible for us to take our God-ordained means and corrupt them over time. I'm sure there's many ways that could happen. I wonder if one way for us here would be to just allow the Bible to start functioning independently of Jesus. We might get really excited in Bible study, really keen to dig into the passages, understand them, understand how it all fits together, but it stops there. I wonder if our risk is that we get so into the Bible that we forget that it's merely a tool. It's a wonderful, it's a precious, it's a God-ordained tool, but it's a tool to point us to Jesus and to help us live for him. If we forget what the Bible's for, then we could end up rejecting Jesus. And that's a tragedy. And rejecting Jesus, that's the second thing we see in our passage. Jesus' rejection. Jesus' rejection. So Jesus, at the start of chapter 12, he tells a parable, doesn't he? A parable about a vineyard. And as soon as he opens it, his audience would have known 
what it was about. If you look at Isaiah 5, which they'd have had in their heads, it opens nearly exactly the same with Isaiah telling a story about a man planting a vineyard. And in Isaiah 5, it's clear that the vineyard is God's people, Israel and Judah. And this parable that Jesus tells, it might be familiar if we've heard it before, but it's shocking when you start to think about it. So to get our heads into it, let's imagine a modern retelling. Let's imagine, say, that the Isle of Wight decides it wants to secede from the United Kingdom. As far as I'm aware, they're not trying to, but let's imagine they are. So let's imagine the islanders, they get together, they start to demand this. And so initially to deal with things, the government sends some low-ranking civil servant, but they get beaten up and sent back to London. So the government keeps sending civil servants, then members of parliament, then members of the government to try and reason with the islanders, but all the time the opposition gets ever more fierce until the prime minister has a meeting with King Charles and the king says, we can send my son, whom I love, who people honor and respect, Prince William, Prince of Wales. And so Prince William, he heads to the south coast he reaches Southampton, he gets on a boat, he sails down the Solent, and when the rebels on the Isle of Wight hear he's coming, they think, this is it. This is our chance. So when he lands, they capture him, murder him, and dump his body in the sea. That's shocking, isn't it? And that is what Jesus' parable says was going on in his own day. He's saying there had always been some amongst God's people who had rejected God's messengers, and now it had reached the point where God had sent his only son whom he loved. And they were going to kill him, string him up on a cross. Jesus was totally rejected by the leaders. They know he's talking about them. Chapter 12, verse 12 says that they look for a way to arrest him. Did you notice something in the passage? Jesus, he doesn't just tell the parable. It seems he's not wanting to get across just how shocking their rejection of him is. No, did you hear? He added a quotation from Psalm 118 after the parable. Look down in verse 10. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? He says to them. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is saying his rejection at the hands of the leaders, it's not the end. If we've heard the gospel before, we know where this is heading. If you're not a Christian or you haven't heard the gospel before, let me tell you. So even though the leaders, they rejected Jesus, even though soon they're going to have him arrested on a false charge, tried in a biased court, he'll be failed by a weak ruler, mocked by a group of soldiers, die a criminal's death, strung up on a cross... And gloriously, that's the place where in God's plan our sins are forgiven. But three days later, he will rise from the dead, be exalted into heaven from where he is ruling over the whole world. That's where all this is heading, Jesus is saying. He's saying it's heading to a place where, as it were, the stone that the builders cast aside threw away as unnecessary that turns out to be the very stone that is needed to fit into the corner of the building to be the one that's so important that holds the whole building together. I'll admit, I don't know anything about first century or even Old Testament architectural practices, 
But I don't think we need to to grasp what Jesus is saying, do we? Jesus is saying, God has taken him, the one who will be rejected and killed, and exalted him above all else to make him the head of the church and the ruler of all creation. I think we can agree with the psalmist who says, the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The more you think about it, the more marvelous it is that God would work through a rejected and crucified Jesus. When you stop and consider it, the fact that this church here, St. Ebbs, the fact that it's here at all is quite frankly astonishing. A group of people who follow a man who 2,000 years ago and 2,000 miles away was given the death penalty. Why are we here? Without God working to exalt Jesus, it seems almost beyond belief that there would be churches here in Britain in 2023. And so because we're here, because God did this, it can only be God's work. There's a 16th century theologian, pastor, preacher called John Calvin, who I love to read, and he was writing about this passage, and he also comments that if Jesus' death didn't stop him taking his place as Lord of all creation, then nothing will. So I don't know what your reaction is when you look around this country. I don't know if you saw before Christmas the 2021 census results were released, saying a minority of the country identifies as Christian. We know a small percentage of people in Britain are in church each Sunday. feels like our society is moving further away from a Christian worldview, from Christian values on which it's been based for so long. That might concern us. It might be gravely concerning. But that doesn't affect Jesus. He is, he was, he ever will be on his throne. And because God has put him there, Nothing ever can thwart that. And that means we can listen to what he says. And that's the third thing we see. We see Jesus' wisdom. Jesus' wisdom. And so we return, or rather the Jewish leaders return. They want to snare Jesus. They send back a group made up of Pharisees and Herodians, opponents of Jesus, presumably. And they want to catch him in his words, as Mark puts it. And you've you've got to hand it to them. It feels like they've got him, doesn't it? Because you can imagine the scenario. I think it's probably fair to say that no one really likes taxes. But taxes imposed by a foreign military power, well, if Jesus says pay the tax, he's a traitor to his people. He's colluding with the Romans. His followers should disown him. But if he says don't pay the tax... Or maybe they'll go and have a little word with the garrison down the road and say that he's starting an insurrection. Either way, it seems like Jesus is in trouble. But his answer is masterful, isn't it? But before we dive into his answer, let's just pause. As an aside, I want to draw out something that I think Mark is showing us quite deliberately here. If we stand back and think about these passages together, what do we see? Well, twice Mark tells us that the leaders fear the people, 11.32 and 12.12. And because they fear the people, they don't speak. 
But Jesus, when the people come to flatter him, what do they say? Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Fear, paying no attention to people. And we saw in that first interaction, Jesus, he confounds the leaders brilliantly with a question they can't answer. The second time, the leaders, they send people to Jesus with a question they think he can't answer. But he's too good for them. I think Mark, he's showing us that these leaders, they're a poor imitation of Jesus. Jesus, he shows them up for what they are, that they've abandoned their calling. They show how much greater Jesus is. Jesus, he's the true leader of God's people. So can I say to you, if you're dissatisfied with Christian leaders, if you're disappointed with them, if they've let you down, if they're self-centered, if they've abandoned their calling, well, then know that like the leaders in this passage, they are a poor imitation of Jesus. And if that's you, can I encourage you to go back to Jesus and cling to him? Because he will never let you down. He is utterly faithful. He's completely true. He is wonderfully gentle. He's graciously kind. Cling to him because he's the real thing. And so let's return to what he said in response to that question about taxes. Let me read from verse 16 of chapter 12. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Aside from the fact that Jesus, he brilliantly thwarts their impossible question, what's he saying? He's saying, how do you know who something belongs to? Look at whose image is on it. And what do you do once you know who it belongs to? Give it back to them. And so the coin goes to Caesar to pay the tax. And us? Well, we're given to God because we bear his image as we have since he created us and declared in Genesis 1, let us make mankind in our image. Which means you bear God's image. Which means you belong to him as a coin bears the image of the one who sanctioned it being made. So you have value. You have meaning in of yourself. You have value before you've done anything or even if you can't do anything. No matter what society, what others, what even yourself say about you, you have value. And you belong to God. That gives us dignity, doesn't it? And that gives us purpose for our lives. And so thinking about purpose for our lives, Jesus' words, they teach us another truth, don't they? Jesus' words, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They show us that it's wrong to say that being a Christian means pulling away from society so that we can be holy for God. Because that was the premise of the question, wasn't it? Pay the tax or not. Caesar or God. 
You've got to choose. That was the premise of the question, but Jesus says no. Jesus says that way of thinking is wrong. Jesus' wisdom is saying for us as Christians to be involved in our society, whether it's by paying taxes or I guess by extension all other ways we're involved in our society, Jesus is saying that's a good and proper thing to be doing. Jesus is saying we can give ourselves fully to God whilst at the same time giving to Caesar, what is Caesar's, being involved in our society. There's all kinds of examples of this. I can think of our previous church in Bath. There were three different members of our church involved in politics. One was in communication for an MP, one worked in an MP's constituency office, one ran as a local councillor, all incidentally for different political parties. That could be one way of giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, but it doesn't just mean we should get involved in politics. We can get involved in all of our society's life. Romans 13 fleshes this out if you want to look at it later. But just think, if we did this, what if in our society, in our nation, the Christians were the best citizens? What if people long to have Christians living on their streets, in their blocks of flats, in their towns and villages? What if we so conducted ourselves in the world that it was obvious to people that we were giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and also giving to God what is God's? What might that look like? What might that look like for you? It'll look different for each one of us, wherever God has placed us. What might it look like for us to heed Jesus' wisdom and give our whole selves to God? What might it mean for us to live every moment for him? To live as those who have his likeness, his image stamped on us. And more, not just as those who have his image, but as those who are part of his people, who have Jesus as our savior and our leader, who have him as our cornerstone. Because that's our calling to follow him, the one who was rejected, who was crucified, who was risen, who was exalted, and who now has all authority. We belong to him, and so we can give ourselves to him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have all authority you have been rejected and God has exalted you to the throne of the whole universe. We thank you that we bear your image and we can hear your words. Please help us to reflect that image in all of our lives. In Jesus, in your name. Amen.